Psalm 11, to the master, a psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, and they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what could the righteous possibly do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This psalm, Psalm 11, begins with a state of ambivalence, which is actually often the case with the psalms. The psalmist believes strongly about the faithfulness, justice, and goodness of Yahweh, but these beliefs are tested again and again by what he sees, by what he hears, and by the opinions of others in the world. The psalmist is torn (laughs) whether to stay where he is and trust Yahweh to be what Yahweh says he will be, a refuge for him, or to flee to some mountain stronghold for protection. And so the question that is being put forth to us is this, Is the Lord truly a refuge for his people? Will he keep us safe? Will he answer when we call? Are these fluffy, meaningless words? Can we really trust God with every part of our lives? Now, let's talk about the Psalms for a minute. The Psalms present us with very relatable questions and scenarios. Maybe even this morning you're like, amen, already, right now, like I feel you. The characters from this book are so human, strong and confident one moment, frail and confused the next. And this just stands out to me. You know, the Bible isn't an out-of-date religious book that has no bearing on our spiritual, personal, or social lives today. It is the very word of God, his wisdom, his salvation made known to us, but that speaks on the level of everyday human experience. The word of God relatable and applicable. I think the problem of relating often lies with us. We don't sit long enough to think about our lives in light of God's word at least in any deep, significant way. And this is why God gave us the Psalms. Now, how many of you binged some Netflix show this weekend? Like binged Netflix? What are you talking about, right? So you just sat and you just episode after episode after episode. Maybe anybody go see the new Mission Impossible? I do not know my crowd this morning, obviously. All right, nobody saw it. I saw it, it was great. I didn't see it this weekend, it was great. So let me just share something with you. Movies have an incredible effect on my life. Years ago, when they redid Superman and they brought it out, I went and saw it, and I I swear to you, for like three weeks, I was depressed 
because Superman is supposed to end up with Lois Lane. And I am a hopeless romantic. And I just couldn't get over the fact. Like, and I thought of, I, let's put it this way, biblical terms. I meditated on Superman <laughs> for two weeks. It ruined my life. I was so depressed. And maybe I thought it was like a, you know, it was a metaphor for my own life at the time. I can't remember what was going on. But it's interesting how certain things, and I believe this is true in our culture right now, what's going on in the world with social media, all these things, they have this impression of great, great, great importance. They are vying for our attention. They want our passions. They want our heart. They want our attention. But you know what? So does God. And the Psalms were actually written for this very purpose. When you look at Psalm 1, it begins with the man, the woman, the person who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. They have a priority. They have an allegiance to the word of Yahweh, his news, his message. And just like Superman was for me, or maybe Fox News is for you, or CNN, or whatever it might be right now that you, you just can't get enough, you need to know what's going on, you think it is this super important word, God says, no, my word, my word is the word that will ground you. It will root you deep so that you can be prosperous no matter where you are and what is going on around you. But here is the responsibility for us. We must give attention to it. We must sit with God's word and meditate it, just like Psalm 1 tells us to. This is the call of the book of Psalms. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Answering God, says this, our habit is to talk about God, not to him. We love discussing God. The Psalms resist these discussions. They are not provided to teach us about God, but to train us in responding to him. We don't learn the Psalms until we are praying them. See, what the Psalms are meant to do, they're meant to go deep down into us. We're meant to take them in and, and, and meditate. Let it marinate there. And as we've done that, then to respond to God in prayer, to continue a conversation that God has already started. Through the Psalms, we learn to be still before God, to think on his word, to mull it over, to allow it to hit us where God intends it to hit us, right in the heart, the very center of who we are. As I said a moment ago, then to respond in prayer and worship. And, and let's be honest, our initial reactions to God's word are not always the right Reaction. Sometimes we are angry with God. We're frustrated. We're afraid, bitter, flippant. You know what? The Psalms say that's okay. That's why I love the Psalms. They say, like, come on in. Yeah, you're angry? Me too. You're frustrated? Me too. Come on in. There's space for that. They allow us to express our raw emotions to God, yet they simultaneously seek to shape them into right or righteous emotions. With the Psalms, we can approach God with brutal honesty, yet seek to be rooted in truth and ready to submit to him. Now, why is it so important to sit with God's word and turn it into prayer? Well, prayer is important for many reasons, of course, but Here's one very important one from Tim Keller. He says, prayer 
is the way that all the things we believe, excuse me, all the things we believe in and that Christ has won for us actually become our strength. Prayer is the way that truth is worked into your heart to create new instincts, reflexes, and dispositions. It's from Tim Keller, his book, Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. And you think about that. I don't know where you're at on your spiritual journey with Jesus. I don't know how long you've been walking with God, but maybe you feel like you've plateaued. And you're taking in, you're here every night. You are a Calvary Chapel diehard, right? You are at every Bible, you even come to the noonday Bible study. You can't get enough, right? And maybe you're here because you think, I just, like, it's not enough. Nothing's changing in my life. I'm still addicted to pornography. I'm still having marital issues. I'm still having relationship issues. I'm still dealing with anger and bitterness. I can't get enough. It's not working. Might I suggest that the problem is is that you have not given enough time and space to sit in God's word and to let it marinate. As Tim Keller says here, prayer is the way we assimilate the truth of God. It's the way that it works into our being and gives us those new instincts, those new desires of the new heart or of the new man. God has given us a prayer for, excuse me, God has given us the gift of prayer for spiritual formation. And I, I don't even need to know the life of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. I'm a pastor of a church up north and I know what the prayer life of our church is like. I know my own struggles in prayer and so I know that this is a relevant word for every single one of us. God wants to make us not into consumers of his word, but to those who would assimilate his word and those who would live it out. Those who would experience the life, life in the spirit, life in the new man or in the new woman. And so this morning, as we look at this psalm, I, I hope that that is what takes place for you, that this goes deep down into your heart and it creates new instincts, new desires. Uh, it roots you in the truth of who God is and what he's done so you can live the life that God has purchased for you in Jesus to live, the life of true flourishing. So let's look at our psalm, right? So first we begin with the dilemma. So David says, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark of the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So the question I ask is, who is talking here? Who's giving David this counsel? Sounds like it is a well-intended friend. Could it be possibly an enemy under you know, guise pretending to be a friend? The interesting thing is that David does not deny the true threat to his life or possibly the life of his people. There is, in fact, danger abrew in the psalm. The social fabric of society is unraveling. If the foundations are destroyed... When all hell breaks loose, when the rug is pulled out from under you, what can you do? The counsel that is given to David is that he should get out of Dodge. Find some mountain fortress, some protection to hide for safety. 
But this is David's response. I'm trusting in God. But the counsel that he's getting seems to question the validity of his confidence. Again, as I said in the beginning, the question is where can true safety be found? Is God truly a refuge for his people? Now, this psalm is strikingly similar to what we read in Psalm 121. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Again, the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Here again, the psalmist is tempted to look up at the hills for help. Flee to some mountain place. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Now, the hills here could represent simply the power of nature or the fortresses of Israel. It could be a reference to the high places where the pagans sacrificed to the different gods, gods you know, to gain their favor, gods of power, gods of war, gods of might, success, and pleasure. Whatever it is exactly, it definitely is a reference to the fact that when we are in trouble, we are prone to look everywhere around us for help except to the Lord. Any and every precaution to protect us from danger, be it ancestral amulets to voodoo, to insurance policies, to guns, to police, to our own might or prowess. It could be family, money, insurance, whatever. Something that offers us some sort of security. The hills are a picture, I believe, of creation and nature at its most powerful. The heights. No one can reach you in the heights. Get up to some mountain place. So this is the counsel that David's being given. Flee to some mighty fortress. Trust in in your own power, your own prowess. Look to these things. They'll save you. But here's the truth. Nature, the creation, has no love or compassion for you. It cannot guarantee your safety. You know, it's popular at the moment to contribute success or failure uh, to the kindness or anger of the universe. Has anybody noticed that besides me? Like on social, thank you, universe. Ah, the universe is smiling on me today. People say this kind of stuff all the time, right? But does the universe really love us? Uh, I'm from Santa Rosa. I I can say that with confidence. I've lived there for 13 years. And some of you might remember last year, uh, in October, uh, insane fires broke out in our city, destroyed some 1,500 homes, 1,000 businesses. Um, I can tell you what, nobody at that time was saying that the universe loved us. The universe is a wild place. Nature is a wild place. And yet, we look to these things. We look to chance, our own power. But you know what? Even our own power will fail 
Does the universe, does nature love us? Can we earn its favor? Listen to Annie Dillard. I love this. She says, evolution loves death more than it loves you or me. I had thought to live by the side of the creek in order to shape my life to its free flow, but I seem to have reached a point where I must draw the line. It looks as though the creek is not buoying me up, but in fact dragging me down. Look, Cock Robin may die the most gruesome of slow deaths, and nature is no less pleased. The sun comes up, the creek rolls on, the survivors still sing. I cannot feel that way about your death, nor you about mine, or either of us about the Robins. We value the individual supremely, and nature values him not a whit. I don't know if you guys remember Annie Dillard. She was this... uh, I guess sort of a hippie lady, that she decided she was going to go out to this place, Tinker Creek, and she was just going to mold her life to nature. Just, I'm going to follow its free flow wherever it takes me. I'm just going to be one with nature. And she got out there, and she's like, nature is brutal. <laughs> red and claw, you know, uh, red and tooth and claw. She's just like, I can't do this. This is, this, is, this is brutal, right? Nature, the creation, has no love or compassion for you. It cannot guarantee your safety. But listen to what Psalm 121 says, and we'll get back to Psalm 11 in a minute. Psalm 21, in contrast, says, God, or the Lord, which is his covenant name, the Lord is your guardian, shielding you from sunstroke, sheltering you from moonstroke or lunacy. He will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The promise is that Yahweh will protect his people, body, soul, and mind. He is their keeper. Now, let me just share personally about how this works in my life. I'm just going to be honest about Psalm 11 for a minute. And maybe this is your experience perspective is similar to mine. I often see life this way. God has worked everything I need in the victory of Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection. God is preparing a place for me in glory forever, a new heaven, a new earth, a resurrected body, and I hope in that. And I I believe that I'm, I'm trying to live out that living hope, right? That that energizes me for today. And I believe that all this is true, but here's where kind of the disconnect. But in this middle bit, what we call life, with all caps, I just live by faith. And what that means, practically in my life, is life is just super hard, sin is still at work in this crazy world, and I shouldn't really expect good things to happen. Rather, I should expect bad. I should expect hardship. You know, like, uh, over my mantle would be, All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We must enter the kingdom through much hardship. Those are the things I crochet on pillows, right? (laughs) That's me. Some call me a pessimist. I call myself a realist, right? It's always the way it is. And, And I would say, in fact, to expect God to show up in the here and now to deliver me from my fear, sickness, dilemma, or whatever, whatever I'm dealing with is just unrealistic and wishful thinking. Life is hard. Deal with it. 
The king of glory came to this earth and they crucified him. You think it's going to be any better for you? I'm a great pastor, by the way. I just have to say. <laughs> Biblical counselor. Extraordinaire. Um, to be honest, I try to keep these things to myself <clears throat> most of the time. But here's the deal, okay? There are actually a lot of scripture and biblical characters that I could use to support this pessimistic view. Right? I could use Abraham. <laughs> God takes him from Ur, it's this like magnificent city, and he takes him out to the desert saying, I'm gonna make you great. I'm like, okay, that's kind of backwards and boring and upside down. And you have Jacob, David, who's hunted most of his life. You have Paul, Jesus, right? I just mentioned. First Peter tells us, now we have trials, we wait for salvation. I could support this scripture and verse many times over. But listen to this. Again, the psalmist writes in Psalm 27, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have lost Heart. You know, for in Hebrew, the heart is the center of the, it, the person. It is everything. It is the control center of the, of the human being, the very, very center of who you are. It's everything. I would have lost myself. I would have lost my way. I would have lost all identity, all hope, he's saying unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, he expected goodness from God in this life. This question, again from Eugene Peterson, this question floored me. He said, do you think the way to tell the story of the Christian journey is to describe its trials and tribulations? Yes, I would say. Yes, I do, Eugene. He says, it is not. It is to name and to describe God who preserves, accompanies, and rules us. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. See, I live in this pessimistic world. Trials and troubles, tribulation, hardship. But the psalmist says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. See, David here in Psalm 11, he's fixed. He believes and teaches God's present activeness to show mercy and deliver to judge and reward Listen to this, he goes on, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. David's reference to God being in heaven is not a nod to deism. Reading this as English speakers in 2018, we are disconnected from the Hebrew context. But when the Hebrews talked about heaven, it was not some far off dimension, right? Like 
some other world that, you know, you just travel through space and time and far out enough, you'd finally reach the throne room of God. That is not how they saw the universe. He's actually saying the exact opposite from the way that we hear it. God is in his temple. His throne is in heaven means he is very near. He is right here, though we cannot see him. Heaven is just a different realm. It could be right here where we are. God is very near sitting on the throne of this world, our universe, not in some remote, far-off dimension. God's palace or temple is in the very heavens, and he is watching the whole earth, testing or refining the righteous, judging the wicked. The psalm brings in this act of judgment. It, and it's very well known to many, even in this day, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Though they're not specifically named here, the description of the judgment of Sodom is verbatim. God is not remote, is what the psalmist is trying to tell us, bring to the forefront of our mind. He is present to act, to deliver, to judge, to rescue, to redeem. <clears throat> now, as I said a moment ago, I wouldn't call myself a pessimist or a skeptic, but studying through this psalm, I was surprised at its teaching. Don't you love when the Bible does that to you? It shocks you. You think you've got it. Like, oh, I know God. Yeah, we're tight. I got this thing figured out. I know what this says. I know what it means. And then you read it and it just floors you and puts you in your place. Amen. Praise God. That's what it's there for. All right? So... I was surprised at his teaching about God's present goodness and faithfulness. I realize when God answers my prayers, my groanings, when God dispels my fears in the present, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. The question is, what story am I following? What narrative am I subscribing to? Because though Sarah was barren for 90 years, she bore a child in her old age. Though David was hunted time and time again by Saul when he cried out to God, he delivered him again and again. God heard the groanings of his people in slavery in Egypt, in captivity, in Babylon. He heard the groanings of creation and he came to earth in the person of Jesus. He lived, suffered, died, and rose again. Just as he said he would. I have some dear friends, Jason and Danielle. They've been with me in ministry for the last 13 years. And they struggled with infertility for 16 of those years. They now have a beautiful baby boy. Uh, by adoption, but it's insane. He looks like Jason. It's the weirdest thing in the whole world. He, he totally looks like he's his, like biologically. He's this beautiful boy, and he's brought this incredible joy into their life. Why am I saying that? They prayed and agonized for years and years. God saw, he heard, he answered. My daughter survived heart surgery six days after birth and now is a healthy, thriving, crazy four-year-old. God heard, he saw, he answered our cries. My dear friend Christina is uh, going through cancer again, again, and yet God has sustained her thus far. 
Friends who dealt with years of sexual drug and alcohol addiction are now sober and walking in a new freedom through Jesus. God is saving people, is my point. Healing their past, securing their future, and working in the present. And the list of God's deliverances from our fears go on and on. God answers, and I'm surprised. What is wrong with me? What is wrong with you? Why, why does this surprise me? The question that hit me as I meditated over this psalm was, why am I surprised when God delivers? Why don't I expect great things from God? Why don't I expect him to answer? Why do I doubt his present goodness and faithfulness? You know what I can honestly say to you right now, and this is not in my notes, because I am fearful of getting my hopes up. I am fearful of having my heart broken. I'm fearful of my own desires getting in the way and being led to disappointment. I'm just honest. I've hoped, I've thought God was doing many things in my life and it turns out he wasn't. In retrospect, I'm very happy that he wasn't, right? I mean, you, you, you've probably all been there. But I do this, I think, to protect my own heart. I'm afraid of getting hurt. I'm afraid of getting disappointed. But listen to the psalmist again. Why isn't my heart like this? Maybe you would ask yourself the same question. To you I lift up my eyes. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Wow, what expectation the psalmist had. What is he expecting? How does he believe God will respond? How does he believe God will respond? Sunday school answers. Come on, throw them in. Anybody? Everybody? Mercy. There we go. Thank you. Yes. How many times does he say it there? Till he has mercy upon us, have mercy upon us. Oh Lord, have mercy upon us three times. In Hebrew, that's significant. It's magnifying. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Do you hear it? Expectation of God's mercy. Not his justice. Not even his sovereignty. His mercy. How did the psalmist know? How did the, why would the psalmist long for mercy? Do you know, Calvary Chapel, Bible people, what is the most quoted scripture in all of the Bible? What's the Bible's favorite verse? Does anybody know? No, it's not. That's your favorite verse. That's our favorite verse. That's the culture's favorite verse. What is it? Bible's favorite verse. No, that's a good one too, though. It's, it, I guarantee nobody's going to get it right. I didn't even know it. I've been in ministry for 13 years. I had no idea. Exodus 34. What is it? You need to know this verse, Calvary Chapel. Let's look. Let's go. Ready? Exodus 34. Okay, let me just say this. The context of this is that Israel has just worshipped a golden calf. They have turned away from Yahweh who delivered them, showed his goodness and kindness, judged the wicked Egyptians who were putting the people in 
probably sexual slavery as well as slave labor for 400 years, and they've turned their backs on God, this is the God that has delivered you from Egypt. Oh, Israel, they sinned against God. Moses goes to God. They have this long conversation about God and his presence going with them, continuing with them. And then Moses asks this crazy question, God, show me your glory. God says, no, I can't show you my glory. You'll die. But here's what I'll do. I will pass before you. And so the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Here it is, the Bible's favorite verse. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The Bible's favorite verse is about the mercy of God. It's not about God's omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, which is where we always start. Oh, you want to know God? You can't know him. (laughs) It's like, oh, the Bible starts. You want to know God? Here's his self-revelation. He is the merciful one. He is patient, gracious, Anyway, I'm on a tangent for a moment. How did the psalmist know this? Because he knew his Bible. Exodus 34. He was banking on God's self-revelation. So here's my question. Do we expect mercy from God? Do we expect kindness and graciousness from God? Do we expect God to answer when we're in trouble to deliver us from our fears? We should. As God's beloved children, we should always expect Mercy, let me ask again, do you think the way to tell the story of the Christian journey is to describe its trials and tribulations? It is not. It is to name and to describe God who preserves, accompanies, and rules us, the God of mercy. Now, the psalm ends, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. What an incredible picture. The righteous one loves righteous deeds and the upright shall behold his face. Now, let's just level for a minute as we kind of wrap this up. I believe the reason that I, myself, and that we doubt or don't expect God's present goodness, the reason we don't expect mercy and deliverance is because we know we don't deserve it. We have a guilt complex in the West. Guilt innocence. The scripture says, the Lord loves the righteous, the upright shall behold his face. To behold one's face in scripture is a picture of favor, it's a picture of acceptance, of deep intimacy to be brought into someone's counsel. The truth is, like we know this, No human being deserves God's love and favor. No one has lived that perfect righteousness. The Bible teaches, of course, that in the beginning of time, God created mankind for fellowship, for face, as the Hebrew would put it. But that the first humans turned their backs on God. What the Hebrews did there on Mount Horeb, Adam and Eve did there in the garden They saw God's graciousness, his mercy, his kindness in giving them everything they needed. 
and they turned, said, no, we will rule ourselves. We will become wise. We will trust in our own power, our own might, our own resources, our own beauty, our own intuition of what is good and right and true. They scorned his gifts, his blessings, and sought to be autonomous. And this turning their backs on God brought sin, evil, chaos, and death into God's good creation. They had to leave God's face. They had to leave his presence. And everyone that has ever lived since then has at some point in time followed in their stead. We have all done the golden calf thing, so to speak, right? We have given our loyalty, our allegiance, our attention to power that cannot deliver, to love that cannot satisfy, to power, or excuse me, to money that cannot buy what we really need. Every single one of us have done that. We have trusted in some mountain fortress, like the psalmist says. We have looked up to the hills for our help. Every one of us has turned their back on God at some point in time, and we have not given God the righteous life that he deserves from us. You know what we deserve, according to Scripture? To lose God's love and any chance of his acceptance and favor. To lose face before God forever. You know, think about it, just any relationship. If you were to insult someone deeply, what are the chances of that person just turning to you and just saying, oh, I love you, and I'm just going to stay right here, you know? What, you know, you reject someone, usually what's going to happen back to you is that they're going to reject you. This is what we see happening to Adam and Eve. They, they were cast out of the garden. They can't be in God's presence. Every single one of us deserves to have God turn his back on us to be dismissed from his presence for eternity. God knows this, and deep and down inside, we know this too. We have that guilt complex. But because of this, here's a little John 3, 16, right, for us, because we love it. <laughs> because of this, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived every moment of his life in perfect righteousness and uprightness, as the psalm says. Perfect righteousness, uprightness, and faithfulness to God. Yet, God turned his back on him. Do you understand the irony in Scripture? Like, this is incredible irony. This is incredible storytelling. We deserve to have God cast us out forever, to lose God's face, for God to turn his face away from us. But it was there on Calvary's cross that one man spoke truer than any man has ever spoken before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ was forsaken on Calvary's tree so that you and I could never say or ever have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cast out so we could be brought in. Or as Paul says, he was made sin, your sin, my sin, so that you could become the righteousness of God, so that I could become the righteousness of God in him. 
Why would God do that to the only righteous man that ever lived? Why would God rain down hot coals and sulfur, the cup of the wicked on this righteous man? Like the Psalm says, remember Jesus' prayer? Let this cup pass from me. The cup of judgment, Jesus, drink it to the dregs there on the cross. He was experienced what every one of us deserves, rejection and judgment. He lost the faith of his father so that we who have rebelled against God and are unrighteous can be forgiven, loved, and given God's favor and present. He takes our judgment. We get his blessing. We get mercy and grace. So let me say this. Because of the work of the cross, let me ground us as we close. Because of the work of the cross, we who are Christians, followers of Jesus, those who trust in his sacrifice for our sins, can be assured that whatever trials and troubles are happening in our life, they are not because God is repaying us for our sin, unrighteousness, or failure. They are not because God is in some far off remote place disconnected from the world. No, that only happened once in history. All of that, Jesus took on the cross. So we can and should only expect refining and goodness from God. As the Psalm says, the Lord tests or refines the righteous. Whatever is happening in our lives right now, whatever trial, hardship, whatever is getting you to that pessimistic point of view is God saying, turn to me so I can show you mercy. Call upon me so I can show you great and wonderful things that you don't know or understand. Because of the finished and complete work of Jesus Christ, we should always and only expect mercy from God. Do you believe that? That's the gospel. Jesus took it all. And so we can enter the throne room of grace and find grace and help in time of need, in time of trial, in time of hardship. Listen to this again from Psalm 103. We're just in the Psalms today. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's Exodus 34 quoted again. He will not always chide nor keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Why? Because of Jesus. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. Why? Because of Jesus. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of the cross. So what is this psalm trying to teach us? This, that though God has worked in the past, and promises to restore all things in the future, our God is also the God of the present, visiting sin and wickedness with judgment, visiting righteousness and the upright with blessing and mercy in the here and now. The psalmist has this deep conviction that Yahweh is here, involved in life now, and he testifies to his mercy and his judgments now, for today, he is here, he is present. Not just for the past or for the future, they are also at work for ordinary individuals in the here and now through his radical grace in Jesus Christ. So as we close, just a few questions. Do you expect God to answer your prayers? 
to deliver you from your fears, to bring mercy and goodness into your life in the here and now. Now, of course, let's, let's clarify what I'm saying. Goodness, mercy, blessing, and prosperity according to the Bible, not according to the American dream. That's not what we're talking about at all, ever. That's not the kingdom that we're a part of. That's not where we have given our allegiance. We have given our allegiance to the king of a new heaven and a new earth. And God promises for those who are his in Christ Jesus, he promises mercy, help, deliverance. Do we believe that? Do you believe God is good? That he truly loves you for Jesus' sake? If you are in Jesus Christ, then you should always expect mercy from God. Calvary Costa Mesa, I pray that this message will ground you, that will give you an incredible confidence that like a tree planted by the rivers of water, you will bear fruit in every season. No matter what the Supreme Court rules, the local county decides, religious liberty weighing in our favor or not, your bank account being where you want it to be, the economy being good or bad, your marriage, your family, your life, whatever it might be, might be falling apart. I pray that you would be grounded and you would be a billboard, a witness to the flourishing that God brings through his gospel of grace in Jesus. You are dearly loved. You are dearly secure. You're in because Jesus was cast out for you. You can always expect mercy from God. No matter what you've done, you can always expect mercy. He does not repay us according to our sins. I don't know what you've done this morning. I don't know if you have been faithful to your spouse or faithful to your family. They might not ever forgive you, but you know what? God will. They might not show you mercy, but God will. And he wants to restore your life. He wants to heal you. If you're in Jesus, expect mercy from God. May this ground you, may, this, may you flourish. And may you represent well the kingdom of God.